the life. And so because of Jesus, we believe in Him, we can sing that song that there ain't no grave going to hold us down. So, Well, I'm, I'm happy to be back with you guys. As uh, many of you guys know, I was out of town for two weeks studying uh, um, for my, my, next, my degree. And so, um, and I had some car problems, but made it back um, because I have a very good family that will lend a truck and a good brother who will drive nine and a half hours um, to pick up me up and load up my car at 3 a.m. in the morning and then at 1 o'clock that same day drive back nine and a half hours. So very, very thankful to be back with my church family. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are. I, we are amazed at your love, your mercy. We're amazed at the life you give us. We're, we're amazed just at you. So Lord, I just pray as we come to your word that we can lay aside the stressors, the, the events of this week, knowing that you are bigger and more powerful than they are, that you are working in them for our benefit and as well as your glory, but that we can lay them aside so we can focus on you and see you clearly this Sunday morning. Lord, we love you. We ask as we open up John chapter 11 that you speak to us through your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Death. It's a fact of life. It's one of those ironies that a fact of life is the fact that, that life will end. Ever since Adam and Eve took that first bite, death has now been a part of the human condition. It's been part of what it means to be human, that we will die. And we have all felt it to some degree or another. We've all felt the grief of when loved ones pass away. We've felt the grief of other friends that we have grieving about someone they know passing by. We've seen the effects of loss on our own lives, on our friends' lives, on our family's lives. We have felt it deeply. And if death hasn't touched your life yet, it will, because that is the reality of what we live in. In this broken world, people die. But in the midst of this reality, we as believers in Jesus Christ have a hope that transcends this, a hope that is greater than this, the fact that death does not have the final word. Without that hope, we would be in despair for we look around and we see the reality that it seems like death is the end and it gets the last say, but through Jesus Christ we know that we have hope. A hope that is greater than the death we all have felt. We have hope in the one who conquered death, that died for us so that the curse would be broken. We have hope in Jesus, and even more than that, we have hope that Jesus is greater than death and conquers death and demonstrates that he has power over death, and that is what we see in John chapter 11. We, in John chapter 11, we, we, we see one of Jesus' most famous miracles and another one of his great statements. We see him calling someone back to life that had been in the grave. We see him saying that he is the resurrection and the life 
and then proving it by demonstrating his power over said death. And so we're going to look at John chapter 11 this morning. But before that, just a big idea that to wrap our minds around it, it's pretty simple, but it's this. Christ resurrects. That's our hope. That's what we should take away from when we read this, is the fact that, there, that Christ has the power that's a present reality over death, that death is not greater than him, and that if we believe in him, even in our darkest days, in our darkest moments, when we think all hope is lost, we can have hope because Christ resurrects. He resurrects his people. He resurrects those people who believe in him, who trust in him. Christ resurrects. So as we look at John chapter 11, we can summarize what we learned there by just saying that Jesus saves his people because Jesus is the life. His life in himself, he is able to give abundant life, which begins now and continues into eternity by conquering death and rising all who believe in him to eternal life. And we see that since Jesus is able to give life back to Lazarus' decomposing body, we have faith and trust that he can give life to our sinful, rotten souls. And that life is delivered through his death for his people. So let's start by reading... John chapter 11, and we're going to break it up into bite-sized chunks as we walk through this and see the story unfold. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill, but when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they have thought he had meant resting, taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. That's the setup. This is the setting in which was about to happen. That there was a man named Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, and he was ill. In fact, Jesus was friends with his whole family. Martha and Mary, we see them actually throughout um, all the Gospels and how they related to Jesus. And so they had a brother, he got sick, and so they sent a messenger to Jesus who, who was about a day away in travel on the Jordan River, and they said, our brother, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. And so they were already demonstrating some faith in Jesus. They knew who he was, they knew that he could heal their brother, and so they, said, they were basically saying, hey, get back here 
and heal our brother because it does not look good. But as we see through this beginning thing, Lazarus dies. In fact, when you look at the timeline, when he arrives back into Judea and Bethany, he comes and Lazarus has been dead for four days. And so you can see that actually probably when they sent the messenger, even before it got to Jesus, Lazarus was dead. And so Jesus knew that and he, he knows what he's going to do and he actually tells us the purpose for what is happening. Which is maybe one of the greatest things in the Gospels when we see that he says this death has a purpose. This illness has a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God and that purpose is to so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Now let's just, let's just pause for a second. Let that sink in. How powerful is that? It's the same thing he said back in chapter 9 when Bruce was talking about the man born blind. He said he was born blind. Why? So that God may be glorified through it. And if you really think about that, that troubles us deeply. Because now it's saying that pain, suffering, is at the very least used by God for his glory. That hardships, God is over. He's not, he's, he's not a God that has his hands tied. He's in complete control, and yet he's going to use some of our darkest moments for his glory and the glory of his son. And he says that this death, this fact that Lazarus was going to die, was going to be for the express purpose that people may see the Son of God for who he is and give him glory because of it. Now, we don't have that same promise in this passage for every instance of our life, but it gives us a principle that when, then we, when we combine with other passages of Scripture like Romans 8.28, which says that God works out the good and everything for those who love Him, we see the truth that God is in control. And that God who loves us is in control of even our darkest moments and He's more powerful than them, but yet He's with us and present in them and is using them for His glory as well as for our benefit. That we can't fathom so many times is a great mystery, but we see this and we have to believe that God is present and is working no matter what is happening. That's what it means to have faith in a God who made everything, put everything in its place, set it as it will go, and is intimately involved in all of his creation, working for our good in all things. And you've got to love the line that Jesus tells, that, that John, actually John, the gospel writer, puts, he says this in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. That doesn't make sense to us. Jesus really loved these people, so he took his time. Jesus really loved these people. Someone's on their deathbed, and he goes, Hey, let's just lounge around on the Jordan River for a couple more days. We want to say Jesus loved these people, so he got on his donkey and he rode as fast as he could to Bethany to heal Lazarus. But no, he says, 
I am purposely waiting. Why? Because He knows. He knows that what has happened is going to be greater than just a mere healing. Later on, we see how he's talking to disciples and he says, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I'm happy that it happened, that I was not there. Why? Because what you're about to see is going to rock your socks off and it's going to be greater than what would have happened if I just brought Lazarus back from a cold. No, you're going to see something better so that you might believe and have faith in who I truly am. Jesus was telegraphing to them that what is going to happen is going to be something profoundly different than his other miracles of healing people when they're sick. And so he waits two days, and then he heads off back to Judea, knowing full well that opposition was building, that people were seeking to stone him. And when he's questioning about that, he gives this kind of proverbial statement that there's only 12 hours in a day and we need to walk in the light. And it's this sense of urgency that basically he's, he's giving this um, the statement of saying we need to be obedient to God's will, why we have a chance, why there's time to do that, is reminding the disciples that you do good even if opposition's building against you. And so he heads back to um, Bethany, Judea, and he uses this euphemism when he's talking to disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep. This euphemisms are just a polite way of saying facts. We use it all the time when it comes to death. You know, we call say someone's um, pushing up daisies or you know six feet under. We just don't say they died. And so back then it was really common to say they've fallen asleep. But that's a euphemism with actually profound theological implications because he's, he's saying death is kind of like sleep. It's something that Lazarus is going to arise from again. That when you fall asleep, you get back up. And he's saying Lazarus is getting back up and it's just like all who believe in me will get back up and will live. And so he, he's telling his, his disciples to look at him as the one who resurrects as we'll see as he continues to talk and teach through this. So the next part, verses 17 through 27, says this, And now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning the brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha hears that Jesus is coming, and she gets up, and she runs to him, and what are the first words out of her mouth? If you had been here, my brother would be alive. Now, I don't know if she said that much. You see, she still has immense faith in him. Whatever you ask, God's going to give it to you. But you can, you can sense the grief in that statement. If you had been here, I wouldn't be in this situation. But we got to be careful because we can't judge Martha too quickly because we do this all the time. 
I can put that on you because I, I do it all the time, and if you're better than me, good for you. But we do this all the time. When something doesn't go right, if something that we're experiencing is harmful or we're, we're um, experiencing pain or we're experiencing trouble, we so quickly say to God, if you had been here, this wouldn't happen. If you had been involved in this, this wouldn't have happened, God. What a poor view of who God is. How dare we say to the Creator of all that is, who has ordained all that will be and all that takes place is from His, His Word, and we dare look at Him and say, somehow you're not present in this situation? God is there. He's present with us. He's working in it. And that when we lack the view of who Jesus and God is, that somehow when we're undergoing hardship, somehow He's away, when in fact He's there with us, and if we feel like he's gone away, it's because we've taken our eyes off of who he is. But the reality, it's such a humanness that we see here of grief, we all feel that Martha was expressing it, this confusion that comes with grief. Why would God allow this to happen? Why would you allow my brother to die? We don't know. But we do know that God is present in it, working in it, through it, and that it's going to be ultimately for His glory. No matter what we're going through, no matter how dark it seems, we know the truth that God is greater than that because Christ resurrects, Christ moves powerfully through this. And Martha still expresses that faith that, God, that Jesus can ask God and God will grant him what he asks. To which Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. But Martha still cannot process what's happening before her eyes. And so she looks past Jesus in that statement and she takes that and looks to the future and says, yeah, Lord, I know. That on the last day, when your kingdom is ushered in in complete fullness, there will be the resurrection that everyone who believes in you will be resurrected to a glorified existence with you. I know that's true. And so I know that he has that hope in the future. Thank you. I know that. And <clears throat> she's looking past the hope that's right before her eyes in Jesus to the future. Before, again, before we criticize her, don't we do the same thing? That when we're going through hardship, so often it's easy to look in the past and say, man, if God, you had been present, it would have worked out. Or we look to the future, oh, I know eventually it's going to work out, and we miss the hope right in front of us, right now, that we have immense hope, a great hope that God is present with us and working through us, and that this is going to be for his glory no matter what. And so Martha did the same thing. She looked past them and missed the hope standing right in front of her. To which Jesus brings it home presently to the reality by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He looks at her and says, your hope in the future is true, but yet, guess what? That hope in the future 
through me now invades the present. I am bringing that hope that we have in the future back to a present reality that when you hope in me, when you trust in me, you can trust that you will be resurrected in the future. Yes, but you have life right now. That I'm with you for your trials. That I'm with you for your pain. That I'm working in your life. I am the resurrection, he says. Look upon me. Trust in me. He's saying all the promises of the Old Testament that we'll have this future of God are coming into the present through me. Jesus Christ, he says. Look at me and have that hope. It's invading her very life. And then he asks the, question, the most important question of all. Do you believe this? He has just made one of the boldest statements you possibly could make that he is the resurrection and life, that all the promises and hopes of life with God are found and fulfilled in him, Jesus Christ standing before her. And he says, do you believe this? And that's the same question we all have to ask of ourselves. Do I believe this? Do I believe Jesus is who he said he is? Do I believe that he brings a hope that confounds our understanding and transcends our understanding and guards our hopes, our hearts and minds, a hope that seems to make almost no sense sometimes when we're going through pain? Do I believe that he is the hope that we can latch on to and hold on to that's going to carry us through to the end? Do you believe this? Martha, knowing that she believed, says, yes, Lord. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And I love that statement because it gives us a robust um, confession of who Jesus is. She looks at Jesus and says, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one of God. You are the selected person of God who is going to redeem this world. And you are the Son of God. You are the fulfillment of humanity. And you are divine in the flesh. And so I can trust in who you are. And not only that, you are the one who is coming to this world. You are sent by God on a mission by God to redeem God's people. And I trust and believe in you. She says, yes, I believe that. So do you believe that? When you think of Jesus, do you believe this to be true? That he is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world, and now we can add, the one who's going to come back into the world and bring his kingdom to this world and so that we can be in everlasting fellowship with him for eternity. Do you believe this? We can believe it because Christ resurrects. And so it, this story continues. In verses 28, it says this. <clears throat> when she had said this, Martha making her statement of faith, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sound familiar? When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept him, this man, from dying? So we see Mary, the other sister. She runs out to Jesus basically when Jesus calls her. And we see a repeat of Martha's reaction. A repeat of Martha's almost accusation, if you had been here. But this time, Mary has a crowd with her. The Jews followed her. And they're all kind of weeping together. In this culture, um, a, a funeral was kind of a big deal. And so uh, they are much more open and expressing emotions than we are, typically, as Americans. And so they would weep loudly. And uh, in the fact, there's some indication that if you couldn't keep weeping loud enough, you would pay some people to keep weeping with you to hopefully mourn the dead enough. And so we get the sense that they're just weeping and welling, and there's this grief at what has happened. And so Mary uh, is coming to this, and, and Jesus sees Mary, and he sees these Jews who are weeping. And it says in our translation, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In this word that's translated deeply moved in his spirit is, is the Greek, Embrimaomai, which deeply moved is a horrible translation. Horrible. I can't, I, these guys are smarter than me. Maybe I think it misses the point. Because when you look at the word, every other time it's used, it's used with anger. And so it really should say Jesus rolled up to the tomb and he was ticked off. He sees people grieving and he's mad. He's outraged. In fact, actually, the word has uh, in its history um, this almost sense of snorting with anger that he sees people grieving and the pain and he's mad. Why is he mad? Jesus is angry at sin that caused his brokenness. He's angry at death. This is not the way it's supposed to be. He's angry at this fallen world. And so he sees his effects and he knows it's not good and he knows this is not how the world is going to be in the future and what he's going to do is redeem it, that sin is not the ultimate plan for humanity and he's mad about where it is. Not only that, but he's angered probably at unbelief. That these people were weeping and welling and grieving like pagans who had no hope. And so he's, he's thinking, maybe they should grieve and mourn, which is true, and we should do that, but as people who have hope in a future, a hope in God. But this anger that he has is never turned towards the people because he rather he weeps and he's angry at the situation itself. And so we get the one of the most famous verses in the Bible, the short, if you will claim the shortest verse, Jesus wept. Showing his concern, his compassion, showing the fact that he loved these people and he was mourning right alongside of them. And we need to remember that when we're going through pain, when we're going through hardship, we think we're separated from God, we think we're alone, we think he doesn't understand. But as Hebrew reminds us, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who experienced humanity and humanity to full. And so he's right alongside of us, mourning when we're mourning, celebrating when we're celebrating, knowing what we're going through. 
We remember that, and that's what this is showing us, that he knows the pain, and he's sharing in their pain. And that we can trust that Jesus has that same compassion and concern for us today as he had for those people back there. So that even when we can be concerned, and maybe even we can start to doubt, like the people who said, man, isn't this guy who opened the eyes of the blind man, couldn't he have saved this guy? That we ourselves don't fall into that, and we still have faith and hope that God not only loves us, but he's powerful enough to work presently no matter what is going on. Why do we have that faith? Because Christ resurrects, as we see in the next section. Sorry, in verse 38. Then, G, uh, <clears throat> then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been four, dead four days. I think that's an understatement. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank, I thank you that you always that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. So Jesus, mad at death, rolls up to the tomb, and ask them to roll away the stone. Of course, they protest. A man dead four days in a very hot climate does not smell good. I don't speak from experience. I speak from common sense, I think. And so they say, hey, he's going to smell bad. And he's like, hey, just do it anyways. I'm going to see the glory of God. They do it. And then Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Jesus' power is so great, some people have said that if he had not put that Lazarus there, that all the graves would have opened and everyone would come out, because Jesus said, come out. Well, I don't think God is that careless with his power. The truth is that he had the power to do it, and so he says, hey, Lazarus, you, come out. And Jesus' words of great power, of resurrection power, of life power, reach down into the grave and pull a man who had been dead four days back to life, and he comes out of the tomb. This is the power that we have hope in. This is the power that we have faith in, that Christ resurrects. We should look upon this miracle and we wonder and wonder. For this is the second Adam correcting the sin of the first, where death entered the human existence because Adam and Eve took that bite. Now we have Jesus, the second Adam, as Paul describes him, rolling in, living perfectly, and bringing a life a death-conquering life to his people. That this is the hope we have. That Jesus can speak life back into a rotting corpse. He can speak life back into our dead and lifeless souls. That we can be made alive presently so that we can have hope presently and that we can live with him for the rest of eternity. That is the hope we have when we see this and we wonder at this. And it also points to the hope 
of the future. For as Revelation 21 says, Behold, the dwelling the place of God is with man. And then it skips down and says, We, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither therewith shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is pointing to the future. That this is happening presently with this one death. But through Christ's own death on the cross, and his resurrection, and his returning, we know the hope of Revelation 20 waits for us, where death will be no more, pain will be no more, tears will be no more. Why? For we will be have God forevermore. We'll be with him in eternity. And we have faith that that is true for Christ resurrects. This is the storyline of the whole Bible. God created all that is, is, that is, all that will be. He made it all. Humans rebelled, sinned against their almighty God. And so sin and death entered the world. And now here comes Jesus, the second Adam, redeeming what God had made for his glory. And so we have hope. And this truth, do you believe this? Do you have this hope that Christ resurrects? But the story doesn't end there. As we read in the last section of this, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. But one of them, Caliphus, who was the high priestess that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is really setting up the rest of the book of John. That people went to the Pharisees, the authorities, and they reported on what Jesus was doing. Now I don't know who these people are, but to see someone be brought back from the grave we see that some believed. And I think, oh, that's the appropriate response. Good job, guys. But we see some people say, oh, I must tell the Pharisees. And they skedaddle down to Jerusalem, and they report what Jesus had done. They obviously are missing the picture. And so this council, the Pharisees called a council, which is the ruling kind of council of the, of the, of the Jewish people, uh, with Sadducees and Pharisees sitting on it, and they're talking to each other. What must we do? If Jesus continues on this path, He's going to basically acquire a following and they're going to think he's the Messiah and, if, and they're going, he, the, the Romans are going to get ticked off and they're going to come down and punish us because they're really thinking in human terms that they had it nice. They're, they're ruling the Jews by this council 
And that if, if Jesus was going to be that Messiah, they see him as like that conquering king, and they would think the Romans would see that too. And the Romans would come down and, and punish the people, but not that. We might lose our position. And so they're concerned about these things, and so they say, well, let's kill the guy. So they plan to put him to the death. To death. Now we must never, never think that what's going to follow in the in this Gospel of John that ends all of the Gospels, the crucifixion, the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, was somehow outside of God's control. And I love how it shows that the high priest, thinking in his own mind that he's just offering wisdom, saying it's better that one man die than the whole nation be punished, thinking that's just a, he goes, that's just what I think, that's what we should do. And God is using this guy who does not believe in Jesus to prophesize about how Jesus is going to save his people. The Gospel writer John knew this. John writing this says, Caliphus made this statement, but God was speaking through him that this is the truth, that Jesus, by dying, would save his people, that Jesus, by dying in their place, would gather from abroad all of his people into one people, and they would be saved. That this is the plan of God. That how does Jesus bring life? How is Jesus the resurrection of life? Fully and ultimately, he brings salvation through his death. That Jesus brings life through dying. That Jesus brings salvation through giving himself up. That Jesus saves us by sacrificing himself. That's the truth of the whole Bible. That's the truth of this, that God is using this evilness, this darkness of Christ's crucifixion for the good of his people and the glory of his name. That the work of the cross is what we believe in. One man, Jesus, dying for his nation, for his people, so that we can live. I love this because right here we see these two tracks. Humanly, this council thought they were just ridding themselves of Jesus. Divinely, God said, this is my plan to save my people. And both of those things are true that God works even through people who don't believe to further his plan and to bring his people to him. And so because of this plot, Jesus no longer goes around openly because he knows this sets into, sets into plan the cross is coming soon. In fact, from now on, we see the, the, almost the final two com, couple weeks or so of Jesus' life leading up to that final uh, week of his life, that this is now coming to a, um, a head. His confrontation with the authorities has arrived where they would seek to put him to death and he would save people through his death because Christ resurrects. That is the message of John chapter 11. And when we read this, there is a question that we have to ask, a question that we've already kind of seen and put forth but do we believe this is true? Do you believe the truth that Jesus saves through his death? Do you believe it's true that he has power over sin and death? Do you believe it's true that he is who he said he is? And if you do, I hope you do. 
Rejoice in that. Hope in that. Cling to that. Let that faith build in you. And if you have questions, if you're struggling with that, ask. Grab someone and talk. Grab a small group leader. Grab one of the elders. Grab whoever you, who, someone around you and, and seek to understand the reality of this. For this is the ultimate question of not just my life or someone in the church's life, but everyone's life. For this determines their whole eternity. Do you believe this? For us that do believe, grab on to the hope that Christ resurrects. Grab on to the hope that when all else fails, when you don't understand what's happening, that you know that you have life in Christ. That when you face darkness and despair, when there seems to be no light, grab on to the light of the world who will save you. When nothing seems to be going right, grab on to Christ and know that He's with you presently where you are. When you feel alone, know the truth. You're never alone, for He is with you. When with you are at the end of your rope. Christ is working that out for His glory and for your good so that you are conformed to the image of Christ. That Christ is working in all things for you and for His glory. Christ resurrects, and that is our hope. Join me in prayer. Dear Mary, Father, thank you for who you are. The great hope that we have that you do resurrect, that you do invade the present with our, that future hope, that we can trust and have faith that you will bring us to uh, the Father in the end, that you are working presently now, no matter what it feels like. So Lord, I just pray for all of us here that we can cling to you, can hope in you, can we see your glory, we can... We can seek you no matter what is going on in our lives, Lord. That we can go back again and again to your word and know you. That we can lift up our voices and prayer to you. And as we now end the service, lift up our voices in song, praising your holy name. Lord, we love you, we seek you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.